that work? Yes, it does. It's fantastic to be back. You know, I just look around. It's always fantastic to be back, but it's really fantastic here, you know, that this is really beautiful. For how many people is this the first time that you're seeing this room? It's fantastic, isn't it? It's just amazing. The light itself is so much different because of the ceiling and the windows. And and the... the, um, the acoustics are different, I think. You know, it's, it's, uh, I sound better I, I, <laughs> to me. So. And it's great to be back always. You know, I've, I've been, uh, the scheduling was such that I, there were four weeks that I wasn't here on a Wednesday. And I know that it's starting to be a long time when I start to really miss being here. So it's great. And I will be here now for four Wednesdays, so I catch myself up, maybe. And you look at people that you haven't seen, people that you see fairly regularly, that I see fairly regularly, and people that I don't. How many people do I not know at all that I never saw before? Whoa. That's great. What's your name? Carl. Carl, where do you live? San Francisco. I'm delighted that you came. Why did you come now? Okay, good, good. That's a good reason. Was the traffic all right? It's coming the other way, so it's not bad. Who else has never been here before? What's your name? Jill. Jill, where do you live? Uh, San Francisco. Ah, you didn't come with Carl. (laughs) (laughs) But you could find a carpool, you see. And why did you come today? That's terrific. Where did you come from? Uh, Long Island. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I grew up in uh, the south end of Brooklyn, just off the Belt Parkway, so not so far from there. But I worked very hard to put all the R's back into all my words. <laughs> but when I get excited, it falls out. And also when I visit, also, also, when I visit my friends in New York, and I listen to them for a day or so, then I lose the whole... I'm glad you're here. Who else do I not know at all? Yeah. Um, my name is Jan, and I came with my friend Mia, and I've heard your name, but, um, and I live in Petaluma, but originally from L.A. Well, I'm glad you're here. Who else? My name is Mia. Who are our common friends? Um, one that was recently here is Rabbi Shefa Gold. Oh, yeah. Uh, and then also Jeff and Joanna, Jeff, Jeff Roth and Joanna. 
they're coming in uh, August, and we're teaching a week together, a week of a residential retreat in San Rafael, which we do every year. I'm glad you're here. Who else do I not know? Hello. That's great. It used to be that our summer our summertime population shifted being augmented by public school teachers who needed to not be here the whole who didn't work in the summertime. You know, I grew up with a father who was a public school teacher and I loved the summer. My mother had a job and worked every day all year, but my father and I hung out in the summers together and I I loved it. Who else do I not know at all? Yeah. Oh, that's really wonderful. Sheila is one of my very closest friends in the world, so that's lovely. Who else? Yeah. Yeah. Rudy. My name is Rudy. Rudy, where do you live? San Francisco. Ah, see. <laughs> Should have all driven. Should have all driven together. All those in favor of meeting at the end of the class and talking that over. Uh, I'm glad to meet you. Please come again. Who else? My name is Anna. I'm from Dallas, and I'm just in the area for a few weeks. That's terrific that you came, you know. I've, I've noticed the last several years in the summertime when people are on holiday that uh, this is one of the places they come when they're in the Bay Area, which is a very good thing to do because... Uh, you can go right out to Point Reyes from here and ride up the coast a little bit and see some more of the coastline. Everybody who hasn't been here before? Yeah, there you are. I'm Sierra. I'm from Raleigh, North Carolina. I'm here visiting friends in the Bay Area. I'm going to drop this. That's great. I, I really love that. Everybody that wasn't here before? Oh. That's terrific. So are you camping in Armstrong Redwoods? We were at uh, Samuel P. Taylor. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Are there a number of you here today? There you are. What's your name? Tanya. Tanya. I'm very glad that you came. The teenager's in the car. (laughs) 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 Couldn't get her to come in. I hope she's not in the car. I hope she's walking around. I do, too. (laughs) Because there's a very good trail that goes up to the... uh, <laughs> How many people can relate to that? <laughs> That's the way it is. <laughs> what we do here every Wednesday, I'm, I keep thinking that. Um, um, Ace isn't here, and he always says, you forgot to do something, Sylvia. Did I forget to do something? No, no, I'm all right. Okay. Uh, 
Oh, he, I, he, he gets me if I... No, no, no. Ace always says, now you, you always say, tell everybody to take a minute and say hello to the people next to them. I remembered on behalf of Ace. Take a minute and say hello to the people next to you. Also, Anne, who's one of the volunteers here on Wednesday morning, needs to tell you um, a message for the end of the morning, but I assured her that it was more likely to get said if it was in the beginning than at the end, because I would be likely to forget between now and the end. Go, Anne. So I just wanted to ask if you could please put the chairs back about six feet from those doors over there when you're finish the class today and also put the cushions and doctors away over here. That would be much appreciated. Thank you so much. They're supposed to stack them up in those? Uh, The chairs are supposed to be stacked up to eight in the stack. Okay. I hadn't realized that these are really very stackable. And normally what we do on Wednesday morning is we just have a class from now till 11 o'clock. And we don't have a formal break, so clearly if you need for any reason to visit the restrooms or get a drink of water or something, just go on your own clock and come back. Don't wait for the break, because there won't be one. And normally what we do is we spend the first block of time uh, doing contemplative practice together. And I try every week to uh, describe what we'd, uh, to offer another technique for mm-hmm. contemplation because I really uh, I have a very strong feeling that this is not about getting good at a certain technique. It's about getting good at discerning what works for you to allow your mind to settle down and be present and see clearly. I've been talking about, I'm going to talk about, if I had a name for the what I want to teach today, I, I talk about seeing clearly. The, um, the name for mindfulness in Pali is vipassana. And uh, I, when I first began my practice, uh, I would say I'm going to a vipassana retreat. Actually, it's not for... Yeah. I'm going to a vipassana retreat. And then when it became so interesting to Westerners and lots of people were signing up and Vipassana was a, uh, is a Pali word, the, the language that the Buddha spoke. So it, wasn't, was pecu- it was confusing to people. So then we began to say a mindfulness retreat. Now everybody says mindfulness retreat. I, every, everything is actually mindfulness. I love thinking about this. There's a, there's a new um, 
physical therapy place on Sir Francis Drake Boulevard that I drive past most mornings when I'm going out from my house. And uh, it, it, it's, we've seen books on mindful parenting, mindful gardening, mindful partnering, mindful everything. Now it says mindful physical therapy. <laughs> And I think, well, you know, I'm glad to hear that because the opposite sounds like haphazard spiritual <laughs> physical therapy or, you know, make it up as you go. <laughs> it's, really, it's really such a vast adoption of the term and it really means paying attention and what I really find myself always talking about, it's paying attention in an unusual way and seeing clearly, which is what the definition that I heard originally for what vipassana means, seeing clearly. And you think, well, I see clearly, and if I don't see clearly, I get my glass prescription changed, and I wipe my glasses, and then I see clearly. And fundamentally, what the Buddha taught is that we don't see that all clearly, because we see through a fog of confusions and conditionings and habits of mind, and we see, in fact, what we hope to see or think we see or prepared to see. Uh, we'd maybe talk a little bit later on about how um, certain views, uh, when they're installed in people, cause them to see in a certain way so that political campaigns know about that and they try to install certain kinds of messages so you can't see around them to what's actually true. And I think a lot about what do we not see? What am I not seeing? I had a, I had a, a, a spiritual teacher once, he's no longer living, who used to say in, uh, in, the, in the weeks leading up to uh, the um, High Holy Days in the Jewish calendar, he was a rabbi, my friend, and the High Holy Days mark uh, in, the, in the lunar calendar that's, keeps track of Jewish holidays, uh, Rosh Hashanah is the beginning of the year, and you're supposed to start the year, pre-start the year with a month before it, of serious introspection, moral inventory, looking at yourself, so that you can start the new year with the clear kinds of intentions about how you'd like to be or if change needs to happen. And he would ask his closest friends in that month, what do you see about me that I don't see that you think would be helpful for me to know about? And I used to think, whoa, how many of my friends could I really ask that to? I, you know, for a long time I thought, well, I'm certainly not going to ask my husband that because <laughs> he probably has a list that's skewed in the direction of certain changes that would make his life more comfortable for him. <laughs> But what would make my life not only more comfortable, but more meaningful, less burdened with views and opinions? So I'm just thinking this morning, as I'm telling you this, it's actually occurring to me that maybe all year long we ought to be, we could be asking ourselves, what am I not seeing? What could I see more? People say I'm on a journey of self-exploration and sometimes that seems a little precious, you know, like that's something that upper middle class people have time to do. And it's really true. It is something that upper middle class people, people with, um, without any worries about how to get through this day. It's definitely a first world problem, definitely.
I, you know, I don't see clearly about myself. I could self-actualize, I could grow, I could be free. But I think it's important for, it's certainly important for me in this lifetime to not be, not clear about what I'm thinking and how I'm acting. I think when I am uh, acting in a way and living in a way that meets with the way that I, I admire, I'm a happy person. You know, I'm not actually doing it because I want some, I want to perfect myself. I'm doing it because I want to be happy. And so I need to have the clearest guidelines. So really, whatever the instructions are for let's sit together, they're always, let's do something that will both um, steady the mind and wake it up. Sometimes it gets steady, 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 sleeping. So that how to get steady, 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 awake and steady is what we really want. And that's what mindfulness is really about. I wonder if that all got recorded because I like that. (laughs) I said that better than I've said it in a long time. And usually the recording starts actually after we've sat. Too bad. That might have been the best thing I said. How about this for um, an instruction for today? The most... um, usual set of instructions for mindfulness practice. The set that's outlined in the um, sermon on mindfulness, the four foundations of mindfulness, goes like this. Let the mind and body settle down by sitting in a way that's Dignified. I always I, li- I like the word dignified. It means honoring the moment, but I also like the idea that you sit up straight is dignified, and then you breathe easier and your body feels better. It hangs better on its frame, and there are no instructions for what to do with your hands. They could be on your knees. They could be holding hands. Many people elect to close their eyes. People sometimes discover that closing their eyes makes it easier to pay attention to the awareness of feelings and sensations in the body and in the mind. And really what we're doing is noticing sensations in the body, thoughts in the mind, In the very beginning, we really tried to pay more attention to sensations in the body, especially if they're neutral sensations, they're not painful and not troubling. And usually, the instructions begin with noticing that breath is going in and out of the body. And the way that we know that, sometimes people say, feel your breath. 
But I think what we feel is not the breath, but the way that the body moves to accommodate the breath. The ribcage separates a little bit, opens up, and your shoulders raise up a little bit, and your arms come out a little bit to the side. As breath goes in and as breath goes out, your arms lower down. As you settle down, just for a minute or two, particularly notice the movements around your lower abdomen, around your belly. If you let breath come and go at its own rate, it slows down a little bit. Your belly pushes out and in. Letting the breath come and go by itself is itself a practice, not being in charge. There are all kinds of yogic exercises that you can do with controlling the breath, but if you leave the breath alone, your body will breathe at the rate that it needs to. Every once in a while by itself it takes a longer breath or a shorter breath. In between breaths there's a little bit of pause. Body waits again. And then it expands so more breath can come in. And then it relaxes back down. Just for a moment, bring all of your attention to your ribcage and around that part of your body. Notice how the ribs push out, your arms push out a little bit. belly is not so prominent anymore. Now your ribcage is. And the shoulders pick up a little bit and then go down. And pick up and down.
And then move your attention just to your nostrils. For some people, this is their favorite place to sense the coming and going of breath. They find it very helpful to really steady the attention and wake it up. If you bring the attention just to your nostrils, they feel different as breath goes in and out. sensations are more subtle than in your body for some people that's not so good and for some people it's great so this is just a way of exploring what's true for you And if you want, let your attention be on the whole of your body, which feels different as your breath comes in and out. The breath goes into me, I feel my back press against the chair a little bit more, my bottom even against the chair a little bit more. Kind of like a balloon that's getting blown up. I think the principal reason that the breath is such a prominent part of meditation in Buddhism and in every other contemplative aspect of another religions that I know about is because the breath is always there as long as we're alive. That as long as it's not compromised, it's a soothing thing to pay attention to. because it's coming and going there's a way that the predictability um, of something it comes and it goes and it comes and it goes it has a soothing effect on the mind So we'll sit quietly and I'd like to really invite you to use today as an opportunity to work with that particular meditation breath anywhere or everywhere in the body or now here and then there and then there moving it around the attention to different parts of your body the primarily a way of soothing the mind and steadying it giving it something to do other than the um, busyness that may have been preoccupying it. And that really uh, redirecting the attention away from the stories in the mind to just the situation in the body right now is a way of actually refreshing the attention so that it sees more clearly So it's a very extraordinarily functional way of both calming and waking up the attention at the same time. So we'll sit for a while.
25 minutes probably. If at any time some whole other subject fills up your mind and you realize, whoa, I'm not paying attention to the breath. In the very moment that you have that awareness, whoa, not with breath, then you are actually, or at least you're on the way to breath because the breath is right behind that thought and whatever you're thinking will have disappeared when you name it, whoa, planning for dinner tonight, not my breath, boom, it's gone and your breath will take its place. Breathing, 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 in, out, up, down. That was a really good speech last night, whoa. Not with breath, okay, now with breath. The attention goes back in time and forward in time and in the moment that you recognize that, it's back here, it can be. There's a moment of awareness and in that moment it's often not very hard to just rest again in the breath. So we'll sit.
As we come near to the end of sitting together, I often find that it's my experience that when I relax a little bit and my mind is able to have a certain amount of stability and ease about it, that it uh, naturally thinks of people or circumstances that are difficult in my life and uh, uh, my own um, natural well-wishingness, goodness, everybody's not mine, just comes up to think about them. People in special circumstances, sometimes the circumstances are difficult, sometimes they're wonderful. I found myself thinking while we were here that it's so still and quiet and soothing here and uh, the atmosphere of uh, the political conventions is so fraught and loud and I think people must be really overly stimulated by them both participating and watching so I hope people are having some time or can take some time there or in the world with it to have a certain amount of ease in their mind, a certain amount of rest. I'm also thinking about my friend Geraldine who I thought was recuperating from her various most recent difficulties physically and uh, I've come home to find that she's really being moved into a more intensive care situation so I'm hoping for Geraldine that this continuing journey of hers is not doesn't entail too much suffering who are you thinking about this morning that we could think about with you
may all beings everywhere, all human beings in this lifetime, may they be supported by people who care about them and soothed by friendship and connection. And may we, in our dedication to practice, become more and more ready to be soothers and comforters. I often end up saying that I I have a feeling that the five minutes that we spend, um, maybe five minutes or so, that we spend mentioning other people or situations in the world is is the best Dharma talk. I'm always a little bit um, thoughtful starting to say whatever it is I've prepared to talk about because I wonder... uh, what message could be better than the message that we could discern in the way that we share together? That if, um, if, if there were a test on the sharing, say, what did I learn? What did I learn? What I learn every week when we share in that way is uh, how it is that without knowing the person even who's talking, sometimes I know who's talking, Sometimes I open my eyes and I see who's talking. Mostly my eyes are closed and I'm listening. And sometimes I recognize a voice and mostly I don't. And how it is that uh, whether I recognize who it is or the person they're talking about, the situation that they're talking about is one that my emotional system, that my heart recognizes. So that when I think of a 12-year-old who has had brain surgery and needs to recuperate from it. And it could have been more terrible. And it isn't. 
I feel both moved of how distressed everybody must have been waiting for that diagnosis. Everybody I ever knew who had a surgery waiting for a result resonates because I have information from my whole life. Whoa, what a situation for that child and for her parents. And then when you hear she's going to be all right, how my heart relaxes, and that I know that that's probably true for everyone who heard that, that we don't have to know each other, but we expect, we count on the fact that we're a community of human beings, and human beings, by and large, are really connected by this extraordinary power of empathy that we feel about other people without knowing it. And think about everybody in the world who's incarcerated. And I thought, oh, you know, first of all, the very, the, the all of what we are learning and learning about what happens in prisons, which is so terrible. But just the idea of not being free. I think about that, about not being able to go out of where you are for years. And how must that be? And it, and And... I have a kind of a pain in my heart when I think about it. And the pain is um, supportable in this context because I know you share it with me. And there's something about being with people who you know get you. Even if they don't know you, they get you. Um, One of the things that I always say, this is maybe my most important thing that the Buddha said, uh, his, his uh, principal disciple, Ananda, said to him, is it true that noble friends are half the holy life? And he said, no, it's not true, Ananda. Noble friends are not half the holy life. Noble friends are the whole of the holy life. And we are here as noble friends. And we know whoever we are. We look at each other, we don't know. Most of us don't know each other personally, but we know each other on the heart level. And I find that both reassuring and encouraging because I assume that you're like everybody else in the world. It's not like everybody else in the world is different from us. A lot of people who make a lot of noise are different from us, but they aren't the most of people. I used to tell you years ago, I used to say, I had the feeling... When I, was a, when I was a young child, uh, a common uh, theme of cartoons was someone opens a door and finds a baby on their doorstep. It was, it's, a, it's a sad commentary on the fact that really what uh, young women without other means and uh, in order to manage to make the rest, most of the rest of their lives had to do when they found themselves in a circumstance with young babies. So I'm glad to say that that's no longer true. And I mean, it doesn't make it that the situation of young women in a circumstance they didn't want to be and unable to take care of it isn't still an, uh, an issue to be addressed. But you don't see that visual anymore. But what I used to say when we did see that visual is I have a feeling that most people in the world, if they open a door and find a baby in a basket outside that especially pick it up and they take care of it and they, they change its clothing and they feed it and they find somebody 
who can keep it and nurture it if they can't. Or, and they don't stop and say this baby is the wrong sex or the wrong color or the wrong anything. Just pick it up because it's a human being and it's frail. And I think most of us are like that. We nurture. I think it's in the nature of human beings to do that. Don't you think? You know, we would do that. And then some people, maybe it wouldn't from the beginning, or some people for one reason or another, don't continue to be the kind of people who could do that. But they're not the most people. So what I said I was going to talk about today, which I really will talk about, I'm beginning to think that my saying I'm going to talk about today is, a <laughs> is an intention that I had before I came here, and it sometimes gets realized and sometimes doesn't, depending. <laughs> so I'm glad we have four weeks stretching out in, in front of us. I'll get to say everything that I want to say for a while. So I want to talk a little bit, really, about seeing clearly and how does that work. And if we saw clearly, what would we see? And how come we don't see clearly? I found uh, yesterday, uh, actually I've been carrying it around for me. I've been gone for several weeks. I, I was gone from here for a month. But I've been traveling for the last two weeks and I taught for a while at, um, actually at Esalen Institute down uh, on the ocean down uh, in Big Sur. And uh, it's beautiful there, of course. And I taught with uh, my friend Barbara Bogatin, who plays the cello, and her husband Cliff Sarin, who you have probably met if you've come to one of the day-longs that I've done here with Barbara and Cliff, which we'll do again in 2017, where the three of us teach a workshop called Tuning Your Instrument. And uh, Barbara has a cello, of course, that she tunes. And she talks about how practicing a musical instrument, specifically how to practice the cello, is a lifelong... um, experience in paying careful attention to nuances of every single thing, how she holds the bow, how the strings are tightened, how, how her intonation is. And you can't say, I'm all finished. You do it the whole life. You do it in between every piece. You keep tuning up. And I talked about the fact more and more. I talk about mindfulness practice and specifically Uh, the fact that the instrument that we all have to play on, whether or not we have musical talent or have had the opportunity to learn a musical instrument, we're all playing an instrument all the time. And the instrument is called Here I Am. And it's us with a nervous system that uh, will play a certain kind of music. And and literally, uh, not literally music, that's a metaphor, but we make a certain... um, either pleasant or unpleasant presence in the world, depending on whether or not we are well-tuned. I'm uh, thinking about... I was thinking about musical instruments that have to get tuned all the time. Harpsichordists play, like, one piece, and they have to retune. Harpsichords are very delicate instruments to tune. 
I notice that the timpani is tuning even while the piece is going on. They're leaning over and they're listening and they're, they're tightening those bolts around the end, that, around the side of the drums. So they're tuning as they're playing, really, in the middle of it. And so are we. You know, that I, I think we discover, uh, I hope that we dis- we're discovering. I would say that I am discovering sooner than I used to that I'm not really uh, broadcasting a sweet song today to really think about what's the instrument that I'm playing it through and fix it up. It's my business to fix it up. I was, I was, I was traveling home yesterday from being in Mexico down in Baja, California at a health resort, one that I teach at fairly regularly. And um, it's not that far to get to. It's an hour's car ride from San Diego. The ride in the cab is about as long as the flight to San Diego from San Francisco or Oakland. But it was uh, over 100 degrees in Mexico yesterday. It's 15 minutes to the border to cross. It's, uh, can, uh, you have to, taxi has to stop, you have to get out, you have to take your luggage and walk across the border. You walk about maybe a quarter of a mile, but it's well over 100 degrees. And you go into customs and you have to do again with your, with your visa and your passport and your luggage. You come out the other side hot again, you get into another taxi. And then you go about an hour on a very curvy up and down desert road to get to San Diego. So there's every possibility for grumpy mind to arise, isn't it? Because the body is so uncomfortable, it's so hot and, you know, windy road and... Uh... <laughs> the cab driver... I, got, I was getting in the cab. He'd been called because he, the, the, he can't go over from Mexico. Somebody has to drive you to the border and somebody else has to pick you up. And I get in with the cab driver and I say, can I sit in the front with you? Because uh, I don't like being driven. I, I'm not comfortable with someone else driving me around. I like to feel that we're going together. He said, oh yeah, that'd be great. Because I really like to talk to people. That's why I'm in the cab business. And he really liked to talk to people. And he was, he, was, he was actually making great conversation. And I thought to myself, this is really interesting. I'm the person who likes to make great conversation to pe- with people. And I, I, I write books with great conversations I had with people in taxis and airports and all over the place. And I'm so hot, I don't feel like making conversation. <laughs> So nothing is ever exactly right, you know. And I think to myself, "What's the matter with you? You're not yourself, you know." So that's a you, you tune up a little bit because I realize, you know, he's also hot. He's also hot, and his job is to go out there every day and drive people around, and it's not mine. But I'm I'm aware when I'm not my usual self, and my mind is saying, "Ah, that's enough story." That I am uncomfortable. That it's, it's my own self. And if I think about it, I'm hot, I'm tired. I get a text from my son in the middle of this windy road on the way to San Diego that says, your plane has been canceled. <laughs> and uh, it's not leaving. That the 415 plane is canceled. You're on a 6P, it's 15 plane. So you'll get to the airport at 
at uh, 7.45. Maybe you'll get the 8 o'clock uh, airporter. So I didn't. I got to the airport and I flew to Oakland instead of San Francisco. So that, that didn't work out that way. But, but still, that's happening. And this cab driver is making conversation and I'm hot and it's a windy road. And I I can realize that the sweet talk, not even to myself, at a certain point I realized, you've got to be kind to yourself, sweetheart, because you're really uncomfortable. Uh, So I said to the driver, you know, you mind if I sleep a little bit because I'm, excuse me, I'm a little sleepy. He said, no, that's all right, but I really like talking. (laughs) And, you know, uh, every time I really thought, okay... You know, just bear it. I thought that's a mistake. Bearing it is not what you want to do. You really want to make a space for it, otherwise, you're uncomfortable. And all the ride home, I get to the airport, at the deal, I got a different flight, I got on the flight. And I kept, and really, airports are very sobering places because, however hot and tired and I am, there are people who are less able than I who are getting rolled in wheelchairs onto the plane and I think there's every opportunity to be, if I'm on the lookout for it, grateful for something I'm not getting on with disabilities I'm not getting on with two fretful children and one of them crying a lot I'm just getting on myself and sitting down there's always a way in which if I look around, other people save me from falling into my own self and my own story. So the lesson that I learned from that, I said, you know, when you get back from being for a while, when I was in grade school, we came back every September. The first thing we did is we wrote an essay, an essay called What Did I Do on My Summer Vacation? <laughs> so what did I learn? I learned that all the time you have to be tuning the instrument, all the time, because it's likely to fall out of tune with any kind of um, challenge. When I, left, when I left on this trip, though, because I was going to be teaching all over the place, I took this piece of paper, which I just found in cleaning out some drawers before I left, and it's a, it's a great piece of paper. I wonder if I don't want to make it for you. I do. Where is Annie? Annie, can you run and... uh, Would you like this piece of paper? After I said it's a great piece of paper. So bring us... uh, What do you think, 70 pieces? Okay. I haven't got one to use as a cheat sheet, so I'll just talk. But the piece of paper says, why are we doing mindfulness and what will it do for you? I think it does everything for you. If you think about the, the... Uh, the complete definition of mindfulness which is paying attention moment to moment to what's happening what's arising outside of us what's going on it's hot I've got a very talkative cab driver this road is very windy I'm on the edge of being not so good from that windy road and what else is happening is I'm going to the airport 
where I will magically be in an hour transported to Northern California and after that back home and I can walk on the plane by myself and my health is good and I really have everything, every possible blessing. I have successfully passed my 80th birthday so I am now in my 81st year. It's great, Susan. You have to do, wait another year but then you get to do that next year. There's always a way, if I remember, to use the outside world to, to pull me out of falling into the deep hole of my own self-preoccupied. This is happening to me. Life is happening to everybody in various degrees of discomfort. Most of it, much, 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 99% of it, much, 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 much more uncomfortable than the way it's happening to me. If, if there's a moment that it falls into itself... That's just a sign. Do something. And you can. I really think that's when you tune the instrument, that it's a lifelong tune the instrument. And to catch it before it becomes a story. I actually think, I also learned something. What did I learn on my summer vacation? I learned about uh, connectedness. That when I don't fall into my own story, poor me, look what's happening... I'm not a victim, and when I'm not a victim or a villain, then I am connected to everybody else in this great pageant play that we're all living. I think to myself, what we really want to feel, I think, is connected, that not separate. Lonesome is the worst. They find, by the way, all, all, most of the studies I read about what causes people to live long, there are factors, of course, and uh, a lot is genetics, and a lot is um, the genetics that have to do with your health or accidents, of course. But apart from accidents and devastating illnesses, people seem to live long, dependent in large measure about how many connections they have in the world. People who belong to church groups, people who have some group that meets all the time, I read in a magazine, uh, the Marin magazine. Well, anybody gets Marin magazine? It comes in the mail. Uh, it's really a very uh, glorified uh, 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 real estate instrument. It's really talking about how wonderful it is to live in Marin. I am amazed to find how much houses in Marin are costing these days. But I read a story in it at the last night about a group of people who have been meeting at a restaurant in Sausalito called um, Fred's for 35 years. Every single morning, these seven men and, eight, and one woman meet and have breakfast there in Fred's at 7 o'clock in the morning. So they're all pretty old now. They've been meeting for 35 years. And they're just there at 7 o'clock every morning and they have breakfast with each other. And they talk and they reminisce and they talk about what's in the news and who won the ball games yesterday. And, but they are friends. And they're not so much friends on the outside of that. They said we were when we were younger. We hiked together and we skied together and we this together and we that together. But uh, thank you very much, Anne. But now we're too old to do all that sort of stuff. The most we can do is have breakfast together. <laughs> but we have breakfast together every day and we talk. And I thought, you know, what if the world all had, everybody in the world had eight, seven friends with whom they had breakfast together 
every morning and the means to buy breakfast together every morning. That would be such a, a desirable outcome. People would be happy. Probably wouldn't be doing so many devastating things to other people. It's a great thing. The thing of connection. To not feel alone. Maybe I was thinking also, feeling connected to a cause is really something that draws people together. Like feeling connected to a political cause. I've been watching the, a little bit. I just got home into television areas the, uh, last night. And so I missed all of the last week. Uh, but I think it was okay to miss because I, you know, I, 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 you know, I, I got the headlines on my, on my computer, but I missed some of that. But I, I noticed just in watching last night the degree of passion that people have, and sometimes it really seems that they're exhilarated, and sometimes really like they're borderline hysterical, or not even borderline. Um, sometimes not with good results and I want to say you know uh, the Buddha said that the uh, near enemy of uh, joy is um, exuberance and I, when I first heard that I thought no that's got to be wrong exuberance sounds great I mean who wouldn't like to be exuberant sometime another you know we should all be just kind of modest and uh, fans at football games or you know, not saying bad on it you know I, I feel passionate about things but exuberance to the point of clouding your mind so that you can't get a new idea in there exuberance not to be able to listen to other people exuberance to the point of thinking the other person is completely wrong because that's painful everybody believes what they're saying I was driving here with Joe this morning and she was saying how much she would like to be able to practice holding everybody in goodwill and recognizing that everybody is doing the best they can and uh, this is really uh, how, to, how to look at everybody with respect. And it's very hard, she said. It is very hard. And I, I have to keep thinking, I try to keep thinking, everybody believes it, what they're thinking. Everybody believes it. And the, the degree of exhilaration to be passionate about a cause is great. And not confused would be really great. I was thinking about people who could passionately keep their, their cause clear and their mind from falling over into... Uh, Antipathy. I always think of Nelson Mandela coming out of prison after so many years and not having uh, negative thoughts about his captors, about his jailers, that uh, thinking of them as people doing a job that they needed to do, and then thinking what a noble person he was and having made actually connections and friends with them. He was actually esteemed primarily for his being able to come out as a person with a good heart. How do you keep that good heart? You have to really recognize, I, I think, it has to do with recognizing that 
one, what gets in the way of a good heart is uh, fear. Things aren't going to go the way I want and they'll be terrible. I hope things go the way I want and I even think it would be very not good if they don't. But I, I, I really, for my own relative uh, ease for now, for the next hundred days, I really need to think I'll just do what I can. I, by the way, I have, uh, I don't know, I'm probably not supposed to say this because this goes out on... I won't say it. <laughs> Well, maybe I'll say it this way. It's uh, it's unfair for me to really. It's not appropriate in this position. This is a church, and it's not supposed to be politically partisan. But uh, a friend of mine and myself, who have appeared in um, different functions as uh, the the guests that give a teaching or perform a performance. I saw that Anna Douglas, by the way, is uh, uh, having a day come up. Anna and uh, uh, Nina Weiss are going to do something about aging, and it's called The Best is Yet to Come. So I thought, hmm, maybe I should go to that. <laughs> uh, I, but I, I don't want to say the best is all finished. I want to be able to say the best is now. I haven't got any other time than now. But the, the, now has got to be the best. But anyway, not to connect, connect them. But they're, they're giving a, a kind of a program about it. So my friend, Nina, um, I sent my friend Naomi Newman, who's an actress, and myself, who have done things together in public ways, said, why don't we work for the cause that we are supporting by uh, coming to people's houses who invite us, who say, we'll assemble our friends and everyone will give a donation of X and then together we'll donate that to the cause of our choice. That will be our political activism. So not saying what cause, but this is a lot of people who have living rooms, so you might want to know that Naomi and I are... uh, going to work for the cause that we are jointly supporting by showing up in people's living rooms to invited guests who will make a certain minimum donation. There you go. So if the whole company country knows about that, that's okay. <laughs> but that's what I can do. I can do that better. I can I can do that better than walking door to door. You know what I noticed last night? It was a little bit um, dismaying. I did listen to uh, uh, the speech that uh, Mr. Clinton, President Clinton, made about what he, what, why he thinks Hillary Clinton would be a very good president. And in his speech, he told the speech from the point of view of being Hillary Clinton's husband for lo these many years. He's the only person in the world who can give that speech because he's the only person who's been the husband of Hillary Clinton for so long. And I learned a great deal of data from that speech that after I married her, 
she wasn't in a hurry to marry me. She had causes that she needed to address, or she felt she needed to address. And she wasn't in a hurry to marry me. And she was always, wherever we went together, whether I was in Arkansas and she went to Arkansas with me and started rural health clinics or I was somewhere else doing something and she went there and started some other cause for women and children. It's a whole list, really, of her accomplishments over the years, which I, like her CV, so to speak, but the CV from the point of view of someone who's known her intimately for the last, whatever, 40 years and I thought it was very informative. I, I really liked it a lot. And I noticed that the commentators on the, on the uh, effort was over, that the commentators on the channel I was watching, the commentators on the channel to which I switched, and that the commentators in general were commentating, uh, commenting on whether or not it was a good speech, whether he had uh, been too self-preoccupied, whether he had told it, made it too much about himself. Really, they, they rated him on a speech like an Olympic event. That the speech, 9.1 on the speech, 7.8 because it went so long, 8.2 because it had too much information in it. I thought to myself, it's not about rating the speech. It was, was it informative? Yes. Could, could have people learned that? Yes. Could have people not have that from anybody else. Nobody else could have made that speech. And I thought, I, I really, I was dismayed to find that this is the channel which when I do watch, I do watch, but I don't watch very much because of this, has made this whole thing into a sporting event. Are they winning or losing? Not, um, am I informed? And I thought, oh, even, I know there's the other channel which I never watch does that, <laughs> but here the channel that I do watch, they do it too. Everybody is actually in what's their rating in terms of how many listeners have they got. And listeners listen to good guys and bad guys and smoking guns and this, you know, villainy. I'm sure I told you that many years ago I was sitting in a bus going from Aspen to Grand Junction to come home from skiing you can, you can date this because it is in the year in which CNN went on, established itself on the, on the television. So it's a long time ago. What, 40 years ago? When did CNN start? I was riding on a bus and there were people behind me, a, skier, a bus of skiers going from uh, Aspen to uh, Grand Junction. So it's an hour or so ride, people behind me talking two people talking about their new jobs at a new television cable station that was going to be all news and that it was a great idea because they were going to make the news into entertainment. And so they wouldn't need, it was a great new idea because they wouldn't need to pay for entertainment. Like in the old days on radio, the Jack Benny show and the so-and-so so-and-so show and they had entertainers who entertained and then in between they had commercials soap operas and commercials but they said we don't need that kind of stuff anymore we make the news into the entertainment and the news has become entertainment and the matter and the and I, I so I didn't this is probably many sociologists have commented on that but I remember I was sitting there and thinking that's so interesting but they did it 
it's funny to have been sitting just in the seat in front of these people and hear that conversation. Probably other people sat in the front of other people. I mean, lots of people work for cable news and probably know. They probably watch each other to see breaking news, breaking news, breaking news to be able to go there. There was that really good movie recently of, I don't remember, Julia Roberts was in it, of newsrooms and you remember what it is? Just recently. Anybody see a movie where somebody rushes in to the news broadcast? The Money Monster. Hmm? The Money Monster. The Money Monster. Who said that? You did, Lyle. Thank you very much. Did you like it? I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> did you all know that Lyle and Karen are the parents of Michelle Obama? Obama. <laughs> of Michelle Latvala who is the executive director of Spirit Rock. Da-da-da. <laughs> and they both look very much like her. I thought about that last night. I th- I thought, and I also thought, as I watched, how disagreeable I was getting. So here's this happening. And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of holier than now. I'm thinking, this is my network of choice, and look what you're doing, that same not nice thing. And then I say, I am now doing the very thing that I have been talking for 10 days, actually for 25 years, about not doing, about letting one's mind become so, uh, uh, so startled by what you don't want to see that really backing off from it and becoming disagreeable myself. Look what those critics are doing. They're critiquing the wrong thing. They're critiquing Bill Clinton's presentation. They're supposed to be lauding the list of attributes. But as soon as I do that, the first part of it is okay. The first part, you remember the story, by the way, that I tell more than any story. I know this now from having been, so to speak, on the road and teaching in other places for a couple of weeks that the, the thing that I tell the most is the opening moments of the opera Louisa Miller. How many people here didn't hear me tell that story? Uh, a lot, so I'll tell you. There's a, it's, a, it's one minute, and it's a good story. The, uh, the opera Louisa Miller by Verdi, rarely seen, has the same theme as many other operas. Many operas. First of all, operas always have a way to unsubtle dramatic scene. Uh, they don't have time to s- develop subtleties. There's either villains or victims or heroes or... Anyway, in Louisa Miller, a king, opening scene, king is informed by his uh, assistant that his, uh, the, the uh, king in the adjoining property that he's hoping to annex when his daughter marries the prince of that kingdom, it's not going to happen because the daughter does not want to marry him. She wants to marry a person that she personally met, not this real estate person. And so his assistant informs him, this is the news, your daughter doesn't want to marry him. And he sings out, I'm reading the super titles, he sings out, anger is arising in me. And then two seconds later, two lines later, he sings out, I'm in a rage. And three lines after that, he sings out, speak to me of nothing but vengeance. So I've been teaching that all around in in terms of the first line is a mindfulness moment. 
Anger is arising in me. It happens in everybody if you're a human being. How many people had annoyance arise in them this morning about anything? Really, everybody. It's too hot, too cold, too late, too early. Coffee isn't good, that's not good. Too much traffic, not enough traffic. I came too early, I came too late. You have to park so far away. I don't like my parking space. Everything. We're always tinkering with stuff. So annoyance is arising in me a million times a day. I think actually annoyance arises in us many times a day. Mild, mild. And, uh, and uh, delight arises in us an equal number, maybe more in a day. So I think we're going around saying, ah, fooey. Ah, fooey. And, and that's normal. We, we are strung that way. We are organisms that are alive. And we're supposed to be able to differentiate between ah and fooey so we don't eat the wrong stuff. Really, like on the level of, you, know, you see animals sniff, 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 sniff. And they know whether or not to eat it on the sniffing. So we did ah, fooey. So it's good to have that kind of a nervous system. On the other hand, that if the ah or the fooey run away with us, then we have a problem like this particular king. Anger is arising in me. Unrecognized, I'm in a rage unrecognized, speak to me of nothing but vengeance. I'm in trouble. You know, they sing this original aria, it's right in the beginning of the opera, and my husband always has a um, pen in his breast pocket here. So I reach over to get his pen, and in the dark, I'm writing on my program uh, uh, edge, uh, anger is arising in me, I'm in a rage, speak to me of nothing but vengeance, because I know that I'm going to teach that for a year. Because it's a story with all of us that anger is arising in me is a moment of mindfulness. Happens to everybody. Then you say, whoa, anger is arising in me. This could be problematic. Let me just think about what I could do at this moment. So I'll take a breath or I'll think it over. I did somewhere yesterday, the day before I was teaching that I thought that the uh, most successful, succinct rubric Rubric for what I teach is T-I-O. Who knows what T-I-O is, Nancy? Thinking it over. Think it over. Think it over. So anger is arising in me. Hmm, what should I do? What the Buddha said in the sixth of the Eightfold Path, which is wise effort, he said, we have forks in the road all the time in our life. We have many more forks than we actually think we have. Every fooey is a fork in the road. Every ah is a fork, a potential fork in the road. You go this way or that way. He said, at every moment of choice, choose the path that does not lead to suffering. In other words, he said, every moment you should be able to think to yourself, what's the climate of my mind now? Is it empty of suffering? Is it, is it full of wholesome states? Wholesome states like generosity or kindness or forgiveness or thoughtfulness or patience or forbearance or understanding. Is it full of those? That's great. If it is, keep on keeping them there. Encourage them. Cultivate them. Don't let them just slip away. So if I sit there and watch the cable news and I think, fair, look what they're doing. 
How many of those beautiful states am I messing up at that moment? I really am not taking good care of my mind. And he says, keep them there. Or, is your mind filled with wholesome states? No, as a matter of fact, it's not. Oh, then encourage them. See what you can do to build up those wholesome states. Is my mind filled with unwholesome states? Well, yeah, as a matter of fact, they have a few unwholesome states, like negativity and annoyance and criticism and uh, what, what do you call it when you think you're better than everybody else? Uh, and prejudice. Uh, so, whoa, look at that in my mind. He said, have you got any other states in your mind? Get them out of your mind, he said. And then he said, do you, if you check, do I have unwholesome states in my mind? No, I don't. They're good. Keep them out. You're doing good. He said, it's four questions. Do you have wholesome states? Good. Keep them in. Do you not? Okay, let's cultivate a few. Do you have unwholesome states? No? Okay, fine. Okay, keep them out. Do you have unwholesome states? Matter of fact, I do. Okay, fix it. That's really... So sometimes when people say uh, mindfulness is letting it just be just as it is, that's actually not true. That, uh, that idea of letting every moment evolve without judgment is really not true. I, it, you'll, you'll see it in some books, actually. It means with discernment. It, it, judgment, without judgment, I think the people who say that let every moment arise without judgment... Oh, I'm so sorry. I think they probably mean without, um, without getting agitated about it and without letting it upset you. But with discernment, and if it is, in fact, an unwholesome state, do something about it. And if it isn't, if it's full of wholesome states, you can see, great, how lovely that my mind is filled with wholesome states. Joy in oneself that one's own mind is filled with wholesome states. And people say, can you have mudita for yourself? Can you be joyful about yourself? Or proud of yourself when you do something good? Isn't that pride and pride goeth before a fall? I think you can feel good about yourself. Especially if, if I do something, if, if I teach and I feel like I taught particularly well, I feel fantastically grateful that my whole committee showed up. You know, that, that my body was in a good shape and my mind was in a good shape and everyone who ever taught me showed up. It's not any big deal. I'm supposed to teach well. I'm 80 years old, for goodness sake, and I've been practicing a long time. And I had the luxury of very good teachers and very nice parents. I have a terrific committee. If they show up, I do all right. And if they don't, I could even say, well, then it's my fault because I didn't fix my mind before I came. If I didn't, I couldn't. Otherwise, I would have. You know, really, if I don't do particularly well, if I, if I forget half my stories, or if I st- uh, struggle over a concept, or if I say I'm going to teach about X and I get off on a tangent and I don't teach about X, it's the committee didn't show up. That's all. But it's just the committee shows up or they don't show up. But there don't have to be any victims or villains or people who did great and people who didn't do great. It's just what's showing up which is the end of that paper. Let's do the paper a little bit because I think it's good. And I'll come back to it if we didn't do it enough. I don't even remember when I wrote this because it's a lot, a lot of years ago. But 
it actually speaks to a question that is close to my heart. And uh, this is a question. The, the term spiritual practice, like do you have a spiritual practice? What's your spiritual practice? I'm spiritual but I'm not religious. I'm religious but I'm not spiritual. All of those are, are, are for me, not the most um, informative. I don't know that much about anybody. A friend of mine whose uh, spiritual path is actually in a different religion from mine, but um, we've been buddies for years and years and years. And she says to me, you know, the important question, I said I think there are three questions that really uh, I like to know about people when I meet them. I like to say, What's, what practice do you do? Well, if they say, I'm doing a spiritual practice, I say, what practice do you do? Um, how do you do it and how does it work? So that somebody might ask me, what is your spiritual practice? Is it uh, sitting or walking or praying or chanting or studying or... It's all of the above. Also parenting and partnering and showing up for work. And those are all my practices because my really my practice is trying to keep my mind clear and my heart open. I think that's the potential of human beings. You can keep your mind clear and your heart open. Somebody said a great thing to me while I was gone. I wrote it down. I forgot what. I, I forgot where I wrote it down. But it was the, uh, it was the rubric of well, one of the places I was. The open mind, open heart. Or open heart, open mind. But that, when my mind is clear, my heart is open. We are as human beings, predisposed to care for each other. I believe that. Towards that end, I practice mindfulness, which is paying attention in all activities, sitting, walking, parenting, partnering, all of the above. And then the question is, is how does it work? I learned a great word, a brand new word. When I was teaching with, with Cliff and Barbara, Cliff was mostly te- Cliff was teaching about his work as a mindfulness researcher, and so he has all this data that he shows. There's uh, a lot of slides, a lot of powerpoints, a lot of pictures of how they test the difference in mindfulness. Uh, a lot of the pictures have to do with Spirit Rock. They came here a couple of years ago and did a, a testing on people before and after a 30-day retreat in mindfulness. The first day they arrived and went to their rooms, they found, uh, I mean, people signed up in advance and did all kinds of pre-tests. And on the day of, the te- of arriving, the following morning, there was in front of each person's door a um, computer that they took into their room, plugged in, and did in the next three hours a test of everybody in their own room. It has instructions, you follow the instructions. And there are different acuities of um, uh, as a picture gets shown on the, on the uh, um, you see a picture and it says uh, something about uh, press the button when you see a certain thing. And so they're marking speed of visual acuity. And uh, press a button when you see the third uh, M come on the screen or something like that. So the third is both a test of visual acuity and it's also a test of 
restraint because you have to say, oh, there it is. No, that's the first, that's the second. Ah, but that's the third and second round. There's the third one. So it re- requires, uh, first of all, acuity and then restraint, not to push the button when you're not supposed to push. And a variety, a variety, a tremendous variety of tests. Three, 30 days later, they come back. Meantime, the person has had the same retreat as everybody else. 30 days later, they come back, they do that same test again. And there's a tremendous number of uh, parameters that they test. So, first of all, by and large, people become, uh, their, their attention becomes more refined. They see more things sooner, and they have better restraint. Among other, many other things, they also measure their blood chemistries before and after, and they notice the presence or absence uh, of, uh, or the increasing this or the decreasing that. Uh, They've now discovered in all of their testing that even after a week of mindfulness training in a retreat setting, telomeres are longer. Where telomeres are the things having to do with cells that have to do with how long you live. So it's really an amazing kind of a discovery. And a lot of the traits that they measure that seem to become improved, like uh, patience, forbearance, are traits that he called pro-social. That's a new word that I learned, and I've been thinking about it a lot. I never heard of terms like behaviors that are pro-social, then I thought, well, of course, they're the opposite of antisocial. So, but I hadn't thought about that. So did you get it right away when I said pro-social? That it was antisocial backwards? It took me a little bit of a while. <laughs> like till this morning when I was writing it down. <laughs> but if you look at the end of this particular list, generosity, honesty, patience, kindness, tolerance, joy, happiness, contentment, those are all not antisocial tendencies. They're all things that diminish the distance between you, either the physical distance in the world be, that you keep between you and other people, or the, it, it, the distance in your mind that you experience between you and other people. Either come nearer to people or feel nearer to people. Uh, that's more you move on the pro-social scale. And I was thinking about in terms of how the world is. So uh, definitely struggle with polarized these and those and them against us and how we could be... um, Somebody said, you know, it's like on a sports event, the sports teams, even you can cheer for your team, they are adversaries, they're not enemies. And the difference between adversaries and enemies... um, It's a very big, important lesson that I keep thinking about with um, elections coming up. Let's see now. It says, how does mindfulness work? This is is the... I did this 25 years ago, 30. Paying careful investigative attention leads to right understanding, which is a clear, balanced, full awareness of how things are, really, and leads to three predictable sequelae. Okay, I see time is creeping up, so I'm going to tell you, don't look at the thing, bring it back next week. Uh, When I was beginning to go on meditation retreats, um, predictably, 
early on, people would give an overall talk on the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. They'd give a talk about the five hindrance energies that cloud your mind. And then they would talk about um, the three levels of insight. The other way that the word uh, vipassana was translated before it came around to mindfulness was the word insight. And people would say, I'm going on an insight retreat. And particularly, I was a psychotherapist for many, many years before I was uh, a mindfulness student or uh, a teacher. And the word insight means, meant the insight that I learned in the 1950s when people began to talk about unconscious mindset states and talk about Freud and talk about, I got insight about the fact that, uh, about the fact that I keep myself distanced from men or from women or from anything it has to do with once upon a time, my mother, my father, my next door neighbor, my experience, my childhood. So insight was insight into unconscious psychological processes that we did not know were active but that actually were shaping our behavior as adults. So that was psychological insight, which um, was a limited kind of thing. And here came my teachers and they said, well, you do get a lot of insights um, about uh, all of that, but uh, really they said you got three kinds of insights. You got, first of all, physical insights, things about your body. I think it's a little bit of a limited thing, but we'll start with uh, uh, insights about your body. Just in sitting still, uh, even for a short time, you discover, uh, you know, I really should work with my posture. You know, I slump all the time. Or I discover, you know, I'm I'm not breathing so well. Maybe I, you know, I I have to think about giving up smoking. I have to think about this is 50s, 60s. 70s, people were still smoking. Or maybe I'm falling asleep every minute. You know, likely I should... I I don't sleep enough in my daily life. I have to catch up with myself. And these are all worthwhile things to have an insight about, I think. But I kind of thought that that was like kindergarten insight. That was not like the real insight. Then they would say, and of course you'll have insight about the way your psychology works and my father this and my mother this and my next door neighbor and my kindergarten teacher, whatever. And you get some insight, really psychological insight into what you may or may not have done in the past or felt. And guilt goes away uh, a lot when you see that the personal guilt. And even my parents were guilty of having done this or that, and therefore I haven't liked them my whole life. You you start to really see how maybe you didn't understand, or they were doing the best they could, or this guilt is not doing me any good, or making myself guilty, or them guilty is making us adversarial. Anyway, you'd get some insights about the way you are in the world. So that sounded like better than, okay, I should get more sleep. Maybe it's a little bit more worthwhile insight. But they clearly were weighted towards the real spiritual insights. And in the uh, central theme of Buddhist psychology is that what was really liberating is if you saw that everything was temporal. If you saw impermanence, dukkha, anicca, anatta. Anicca is impermanence, that everything that happens is in fact on its way to disappearing. Everything is temporal. And of course, it's really helpful to know that. 
on many, many levels, more of which we'll talk about next week. But uh, in difficult times in life, the awareness that this isn't going to last, however difficult it is, is supportive. It doesn't make it uh, undifficult if it's difficult. At times that you're with someone that you love a lot and that person is clearly uh, ending their life soon and uh, in a lot of discomfort. To the degree that you're able to know in your own self this discomfort is just here for a little while longer and then their suffering is going to be, the pain is going to be finished. It helps you be there in a way that's not disabling. I can get the people who have terrible, uh, uh, very painful depressions cannot imagine that they'll ever get better from them and that frightens them. This 12-year-old who has to be re rehabilitating herself, probably it seems a million years until she's going to be rehabilitated and to everybody around her too, but she will be because things pass. It's very helpful to know that things pass. It's also helpful to me to know that things pass. Look, I got to be 80 all of a sudden. I have no idea how that happened. It just happened. I'm very, very loath to mess up any days in annoyance or antipathy because I really know that my days are numbered. I don't know how many numbers, but not that all much. Less numbers than what I've had. And I am not prepared to mortgage the real estate of my heart and mind to... Um, antipathy so really it's important to know about that things change but I, I, when my teachers told me that insight I thought to myself who doesn't know that everybody knows it we know it when we're not challenged when we're challenged we forget it but uh, the second thing that we're really really supposed to know is that struggling with things that we don't like makes them worse you need to change them if you can or somehow manage to accommodate them. People in 12-step programs say that every single meeting that they do, that you change what you can, and you accept what you can't, and you hope to have the wisdom to know the difference. That's really the fundamental of... It's also it's a prayer by Reinhold Niebuhr, from, a, from God Grant Me the Serenity, of a hundred years ago. But the mind, for whatever reason, and we'll talk about this more next week, holds on to struggles with stuff. It stops struggling. It just has pain, not struggle. And the struggle is the extra pain that we add on with our tension. And the last of that is you get to see that everything that happens is caused by something else. We are all... There's a line uh, in uh, the uh, teachings on equanimity that it says every individual is heir to their own karma, which sounds like uh, tough luck, you get what you deserve, you made your bed, don't... You know, it, it, it doesn't sound very kind. I, I really didn't like it when I first heard it. Like, uh, you got what you asked for. I, on a certain level, if uh, I say to myself, if I'm, I'm, if I'm nasty to everybody I know or meet or come in contact with when I'm really old, I won't have any friends. But who doesn't know that? I mean, that part, I know, that kind of karma. But that I was born with a certain set of genes and a certain, to a certain set of parents, um, 
who had certain sets of genes, who had certain ideologies and certain uh, a certain uh, religious tendencies or teachings, and really certain political teachings. You know, most people vote because the way their parents voted, because they did, and they learned that that's the good way, and the good people do that. Some people change. I, I, I noticed that Mrs. Clinton actually changed from her family of origin. But we get to see people as good or bad because our families did, unless we see otherwise. But we're very much, all of us, the product of circumstances. And how we are is how everything has been with us up to now. It doesn't mean that everything is great or that everybody gets a pass or that we don't be concerned about people who are destructive because of everything that's ever happened to them. But we don't have to hate them for it. Everyone is heir to their own karma. means the mind has enough space in it for everyone. Really, everyone. I had my, my same teacher who told me, ask people, what do you see about me that I don't see that would be helpful for me to know? Also said, you know, if there's a curtain call for history, if the, the, if the curtain comes down on the world as we know it, that really everybody would be able to applaud for everyone for whatever part they played because they did it so well, which takes the whole burden over, you know, good guys or bad guys. You say, but, 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 how about so-and-so? She's so terrible. Him, he's so terrible. Everybody is heir to their own karma. Who taught them, who pushed them, who this them, who that them. It doesn't mean... I don't really approve of or want to encourage this one and discourage and restrain that one. It does. I keep on wanting to. And we should. That's how cultures improve themselves. I love thinking about the fact that, in fact, um, I think it was Michelle Obama who said, this country right now is the best country that's ever been. And I thought to myself, you know, I could say, well, Sweden or this or that or something or something. You know, it's amazing. We have a tremendously heterogeneous, diverse population. And I think we're doing pretty good. I I realized this morning that in the year that my mother was born, women didn't vote. And this year, there may be a woman president a lot, you know. Women didn't even vote. Women could not own property. Women could not give away property. Women who didn't marry had to depend on the support of their sisters after their parents were gone. Things are better. We are a very, very diverse country. Things are not equitable. Racism isn't over and sexism isn't over. But a lot of stuff has happened that's good. And I'm really trying very hard to keep my mind grounded in that while I get startled by what isn't. So I wish I had been neater about finishing on time. No, 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 no. I can't say that because that means I didn't do good. Um... What I'm hopeful is that in these four weeks, 
I will continue to develop this theme. That gives me all the time in the world <laughs> to not tie up everything in a soundbite. Oh, I didn't even do the soundbite. The soundbite that I was going to start with is that um, Barbara played a particular cello piece from, she played Bach, just Bach, and she played uh, cantata number 39, and she said, the theme of this cantata is do not forget to share. And I thought, that's a good theme. I said, I'm going to make that the theme, do not forget to share, because we could develop that in a million different ways. So I hope you come next week, and I hope you bring your little sheet with you. And I'm glad to be back. And may you and all beings take care of each other. Thank you for being here. Safe travels home. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.